So next week, I'll be celebrating my 20, I don't know, 24 wedding anniversary, 24 years I've been married, right? I got married in the late 90s, right? Before that, I've known her for, you know, three years. So I, we dated three years and we got married. So for 27 years, right, longer than some of you have been alive, well, maybe not, right? Um, I've, I've known only one woman. I've, I've lived and known, I've known her and I've been with her since longer than I've been alone, right? And so you would think, right, that I would know everything there is to know about my wife, right? Well, as I would say, my woman, I would know 27 years is a long time. And if you lived and ate and, you know, combined life and did life together for, the, for more than a quarter of a, dec- a quarter of a century, you would think that you would know who your wife is. But I realized I didn't. These days, as I, I think I told you before, I'm having like a renaissance about my view of my wife, Right? Through meditating Philippians chapter 2, which, which made a heavily impact in my life for, for a month or so. And through this constant fellowship with God, God has opened my eyes to see how brilliant my wife is. I mean, I always knew my wife was talented musically. But I never really appreciated her brilliance. I never really respected her brilliance. I knew she was talented in music. But I never thought how, I never appreciated how brilliant she was. And the reason why I didn't appreciate how brilliant she was is because to me, a man of reason and logic, a man of meat and potatoes kind of a guy, art is, no offense to the artists out there, art is a luxury. Art is a luxury. I, I thought art was a luxury for me. It's not reality. It's not digging into the trenches, getting yelled at your clients constantly. It isn't like that. Therefore, while I appreciated her musical abilities, I never appreciated her brilliance. But God is opening my eyes after 27 years of her brilliance. It wasn't me I didn't come up with this on my own. As Philippians chapter 2 just constantly remained in my mind. And as I was fellowshipping with the Lord about her, he opened my eyes to her. I tell you this example about me. It's because I think first of all, like me, many married people could live with their partners for years and not really know and not really appreciate who their, their spouse. And the reason why they don't appreciate their spouse is just like me, they assume that they know the spouse. Even though they filter their spouses through their own limited lenses, we think that we know our spouses. And we think there's nothing else more to discover about our spouses. It is our assumption that we think that we know blinds us 
to the radiance and the beauty of our spouse. This is a very fitting example of our relationship with God. Many of you have come to have belonged to a church or come to a church for young Hill over there. He's, he's known this church for 25 years, right? And yet, all this time, it's perfectly possible. I'm not saying he was like that, but it's perfectly possible for you to attend the church for all these years and never really understand God because you hold on to your assumption about the fact that you know God rather than knowing who the true God is. Your assumption about the fact that you know him prevents you from really knowing him. Your assumption that because of whatever experience that you had in the past, you think that you know. Just like I thought that I knew my wife for the past 27 years. But do you really know? Do you really know who God is as revealed in Scripture? Or are you operating, still operating, based upon your assumption of who he is? Assuming God is a very dangerous thing. It's a deadly thing. The Ten Commandments, right? The basic commandments that God gave to Israel. The, the second and third commandment is, the second commandment is, do not make yourself, do not make an idol. And third commandment is, do not misuse the name of the Lord in vain. God says, don't make an idol. Don't carve up an idol. And the reason why he says, don't carve up an idol, is because when you carve an idol and present it to people, people may get the wrong idea of who God is. The reason why God prevented Israel from making a carved idol is because he didn't want the Israelites to have a misconceived understanding of who God is. God tells Israel, be careful of not misusing my name. Because if you go around saying that you belong to me, and yet you live a life that is contradictory to me, people will get the wrong idea about me through your actions. If you think that, if you, if you say that you know me and live a life a certain way, when other people see you live a life that is contrary to me, they will have a wrong idea about me. Therefore, don't misuse my name. The danger of operating on your assumptions, especially about God, is a very dangerous thing. We are Christians. Christians do not define God as we please. Christians have a very specific understanding about God. Why? Because God has revealed who he is through scripture. In India, they have a million plus gods. God to suit every need. God to suit your every whim. They have a vague idea of God. They make a new God. That is not us. 
we have a very specific understanding about God that is revealed in Scripture. The primary reason, one of the main reasons why Jesus came down to be in human form and he became a human being is to reveal himself to human beings. One of the main purposes of of, of the incarnation is his revelation to humanity of who he is. In the incarnation, we have a clear idea about who God is. Incarnation is more than Jesus on a baby on a manger. If I see another nativity scene out there, might, I'm going to flip out. Why? Is it not because that's not, it's not because that's not true? But incarnation is more than a picture of a nativity scene. Incarnation. Is about the revelation of God himself. Not only that, and this is what we're going to study today, incarnation, especially the man, God-man Jesus Christ, also shows what it means to be a perfect human being. Jesus Christ reveals to us who specifically who God is, and not only that, Jesus Christ revealed to us what a perfect human being is supposed to, is supposed to look like. The revelation of Jesus Christ, like I prayed, the revelation of who he is about God, revelation of who he is about man, these two revelations, it is our our guardrail. It is the thing that binds us. It is the thing that directs us. Once again, we are not called free to think willy-nilly about who God is. But in a sense, constrain our understanding about God through the revelation of Scripture. Let's talk about how the Bible describes God. There are many attributes of God. But the attributes of God that we want to focus on this morning is God's God's love that always flows outwards. Incarnation is about the love of God that flows outward. There are three people in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, within the Godhead, there is tremendous love and communion and communication. The Godhead is not like, you know, an army where there's a distribution of labor. The Son does this, the Father does this, the Holy Spirit does that. No, no, no. It's an organic relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit constantly communes with each other, constantly loves each other, constantly um, um, communicates with each other. They're in this eternal bounding love with one another. What happens as they love each other is that their love is never self-contained. When they love each other, their love, it, it goes outside of them. 
and that love within them always goes outside of them. Now, I mean, can it ever go outside of God? The per- that's just a general speaking. The love that is within them is never just contained within them, but it, it springs forth up from them to generate reality and life as we know it. The great poet Dante says, the love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that love within the Godhead, is the engine that creates life. The love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is the engine that drives life. The universe is expanding as we know it because the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is continuing to grow. True love is never self-contained. True love always extends outward. Do you understand? That's why we're human beings. You know this. When we start dating someone... What does people do? They, when, they, when you start dating someone, not many people, but some of them, when you start dating someone, they go off the reservation. They disappear. Because it's just you and them and a whole new world. It's just you and your boyfriend or girlfriend, and everything is flowery, and it's just you two. That's not true love. True love always extends outward. That's why families, it's important to love your families and take care of your families. It's absolutely important. But if your love for humanity is only self-contained within your family, then that is not, that is not the love of God within the Trinity. Our reality happens as a result of the Holy Spirit and God the Father and the God the Son loving each other. Love always extends outward. That's why 1 John says, if you do not love your brother or sister, you don't know God. He's so emphatic about this. You cannot say you love God and and hate your brother at the same time. That's not possible because the true love of God, agape, always extends outward. So if you think God is really about making you happy and successful in this life, then you're sorely mistaken because that's not how God describes himself in the Bible. True love always extends outward. And that's exactly what we see in the incarnation. That's what Philippians chapter 2 expressly expressly teaches. Let's look at how Philippians chapter 2 describes who Jesus is. Let's go to verse 5 and 6. Paul tells the Philippians, by the way, the reason why Philippians are having, one of the main reasons why why Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians is because there were conflict within the Philippian church. 
Philippian church was not a mega church. It was a house church. But even within the confines of a house church, they were fighting. They were, they were, there was division within the church. And one of the ways that Paul instructs them to stop being divided is to remind them of who Jesus Christ is. This is Paul's description of who Jesus Christ, our God, our Lord, is. This is what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Basically, this verse means in your minds, have the same mind as the mind of Jesus Christ. In your thinking, in your perceiving, in your judgments, you are not free to think of others as you wish, willy-nilly. But let your mind be guided by the mind of Christ, who is God himself. Who is Jesus Christ? Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, God's something, uh, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. This is a description of who Jesus Christ is, our God. It says, verse 6, he was in the same form of God. The word form here in Greek, the word is morphe. Greek philosophers use the word morphe to describe the essence of something. Morphe means it is the essence of something, what something really actually is. Greek philosophy, unlike the evolutionist, Evolution thing, nothing's really permanent. Everything's in flux, right? A, f- a whale can be an elephant, right? Philosophers, Greek philosophy says essence is a thing. What a thing is, what a thing is. It's no, nothing else than that. It's the essence of something. What is the essence of a cookie? Flour, sugar, I don't know, chocolate chip. Water, eggs, maybe? Hey, look at me, I bake. Cookie, in its essence, is an ingredient of those things. The form here means, morphe means essence. Paul says Jesus Christ is God, in essence. He is God. Mormons believe God created Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a created person. Paul is saying... Jesus Christ essentially is God. Jesus Christ is in the very substance of God. Jesus Christ is a very, has the very characteristics of God. Jesus Christ is the very being of God. So it describes God. Jesus Christ, you see God through Jesus Christ, right? Paul goes more detail who this God is. Jesus Christ is not a God, it's not Allah who sits in mountains demand things from his people. Contrary, verse 6 says, even though Jesus Christ was essentially God, he did not consider equality of God something to be grasped. The word equality means having, what does the word equality mean? 
it means having the same rights, privileges, and honor. So Paul is saying Jesus Christ, being essentially God, has the same rights, privileges, and honor as God the Father. He had all the honor and all the glory and all the privileges of being God. But our God did not hold on to this rights and privileges and honor that he deserved. That, 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 that essentially it is his, are his. He did not grasp these rights, privileges, and honor of being God. But rather, he didn't grasp here means hold on to. He didn't hold on to it. He gave it up. He emptied himself. God that we worship, though he had every right and privilege to be God, gave up that right and privilege and emptied himself. This is very different from Satan. This is John MacArthur's thing, not mine. John MacArthur says what? Why did Lucifer fell from heaven? Because he wanted to grasp equality with God. He wanted the glory and honor and the right of being God. Human beings also want to grasp the rights, honor, and privileges. You see the Korean drama? Anyone? No, just me? Oh, the, there's a Korean drama that's so popular right now. It's so good. And the, and, and the drama is about Corporate, the big corporation in Korea, and this really rich guy had like family members, and all his kids are trying to grab hold on to his father's chairmanship of the corporation. So good. They want to grasp the chairmanship, they want to grasp power. Jesus Christ had it. But he emptied himself of it. The God that you worship emptied himself of privileges and power. What, what, specifically, what did he empty? What did he give up? What do, you, what, does, what do you mean when Jesus Christ gave up his rights and privilege and honor? What did he specifically give up? John MacArthur, once again. God bless John MacArthur. Once again, these are some of the things that Jesus Christ emptied himself, gave up. He gave up, he gave up his glory. He gave up his divine glory. Divine glory is the radiance of Jesus Christ. God, Jesus Christ being God is the most radiant, beautiful, perfect being in all the universe. His glory was so bright and awesome. That Moses could not see it. God, hid, God covered Moses' eyes when, when God was passing because Moses could not handle God's divine glory. 
Jesus Christ was perfectly glorious. But he gave it up. Isaiah 53 says, Jesus Christ had no beauty. The man Jesus had no beauty. He was so plain Jane, then he, was, he wasn't attractive to anybody. What does he say in Isaiah 53? Um, he had no beauty that people would be attracted to him. The most glorious being in all of eternity gave up the glor- glory to be a plain, unattractive human being in this world. Jesus Christ gave up his honor. He is God. Every creature everywhere in all time bows down to him because he is the author and the purpose and the agent of creation. And as such, every creature bow down to him and honor him. But he gave that up. He gave that up so that men like you and me can dismiss him, can insult him, can ignore him, can hate him. I yelled at my daughter yesterday because she was playing video games with her, with her friends. She said, oh, God. And I said, you better stop. The name that is above every other name. The name in the Old Testament, if you utter the name, you be dead. A God deserving of that honor. He gave it up so that you and people like you and me can make fun of him. He gave up his favorable relationship with God the Father. Up on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gave up his favorable relationship with his father. Because at that moment on the cross, he became our sins. Jesus Christ, John MacArthur said, gave up his independent authority. Jesus said over and over again as he lived in this world, he says, I am here to do the will of my father. My food is to do the will of the father. I submit to my father's will. He gave up his independent authority and submitted everything in this world to God the Father. He gave up all these things. He gave up his glory. He gave up his rights and privileges to God. He emptied himself. And he took on human form with all this weakness and frailty. And temporariness. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? He do that so that you and I can be saved. The God that we worship emptied himself, gave up his rest and honor for people like us. And we are certainly not deserving of that divine mercy. Look, unbelievers always say this. They say, 
Why, why does God have to send Jesus? Why can't he just say, I forgive you? Why can't you just say, I forgive you? Why this cosmic child abuse, brah? Right? That's what they say, brah. They say the cross is cosmic child abuse. They say, if my kid makes a mistake, I just forgive them. Right? And forget and forget, right? Easier, easy, right? Why the cosmic child abuse, brah? Why all this drama about emptying himself, brah? You know why? Because your sins and my sins bend reality in such a way, destroys the fabric of reality in such a way, they can only take God himself to absorb all the destruction and the mess that we create. When I was a kid, bounty paper, paper towel was a big thing. And the way they make the bounty paper towel commercial, they compare two paper towels, the bounty one and the non-bounty one. They spill like, like a red juice or something and see which paper towel can soak up the most. Who won? Bounty did. Because bounty can soak up all the messes. Clean, dry. What you and I need to understand is the sins that we commit, the destruction that we, you and I, do on a daily basis, the mess that we make cannot be solved by us saying, I'm sorry. Let's get real here. Let's say you have an argument with your wife or your husband, and you say really mean things to them. And let's say you come to your senses and say, hey, baby, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And your wife is nice about it and says, yeah, I forgive you. But let's be honest. The words that were said in the heat of battle damaged her in a certain way or damaged him in a certain way. That your I'm sorry, your contrition cannot undo the damage that your words have done. We think that I, as long as I feel sorry about what I've done, then that kind of takes away, erases the damages that we have done. That's not true. When you sin, the mess is already made. It's spilled milk. You cannot unspill it. Did you know violent, mean words affect, you know, like pain receptors in your brain lights up as if you're punching, as the same area of your brain lights up as if you're punching the face? Unbelievers think just, if you just say you're sorry, that's the end of it. It's not. Psychiatrist, psychologist Jordan Peterson, right? He was, a, he's a, he was a Canadian therapist for like 20 some odd years. And he says, when people come to me with problems, what I usually do with them is I trace back their decisions. There's a, this catastrophic thing that happened to them. And I trace their catastrophic event and I traced it back to the specific decisions that they made in a certain period of time. 
And we can see that certain decision that they made led up to this catastrophic event. What they've done in the past, what they said in the past, years after, becomes this catastrophic event. He says, people forget the decisions that they've made back in the day. And when they face this catastrophic event, they go, I don't know where this came from. But he says, when you actually sit down and study it with them, you will see exactly at what point in time that decision was made that caused this event. He says, people are just unaware or forgetful of the sins that they do. We are wholly unaware and really forgiving of the sins that we commit. But regardless of whether we are aware of our sins or not, the damages that our sins caused bends the fabric of reality. Not just you. But think about the sins of your forefathers, your granddaddy and grandmammy, and your mom and your dad, and their, their grandparents, and all the generations before you, all the sins they've committed, passed down from generations to generations to generations. And you think you're saying, I'm sorry, can make it better? It takes God himself to absorb the mess that we have done. That is why he emptied himself to come to us. He come to save unworthy people. That's who God is. Forget the God of the genie. Forget the God of therapy. Forget the God of giving you your best life now. Forget every of that. Forget the God of who's going to make your life trouble free. Forget about all that God. God primarily is about, is the God who gave up everything for an unworthy, undeserving people to clean up their mess. To love them. That's the God of Christianity. And if your God is some other God, then your God is not a Christian God. Maybe you need to believe in Krishna. Let's be clear about who our God is. Our God is primarily the one who emptied himself to clean up the mess of undeserving people. That's God. Jesus Christ is not only that God, but Jesus Christ is also the perfect human being. Verse 8, he says, Jesus, Jesus Christ, being found in human form. So Paul is describing Jesus Christ as human being in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the perfect human being. Jesus Christ is the blueprint of what a perfect human being looks like. Jesus Christ is what a human being is supposed to be. How did Jesus live? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. 
how is the perfect human being Jesus live? He lived as a servant. He lived obedient to the Father's will. Human beings are made after the image of Jesus Christ. Human beings are saved because so that they will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, a perfect human being is someone who is a servant and who is obedient to God. If your life is about your glory, your honor, your security, your safety, if you're trying to grasp that, then your God is not Jesus Christ. Your God maybe is Krishna or Baal. A perfect being serves and obeys God for all the remainder of their lives in this world. That's what you're called to be. People say, I hear Christians say this a lot, but that's Jesus, right? That's Jesus. Jesus is God. He can live like that. But I'm not Jesus. I'm a sinner. I don't have to live like that. We have this like sin, like loophole clause. Jesus is God. Therefore, he can live like that. But I'm not Jesus. The ergo, I don't have to live like that. No, 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 no. Paul is saying to Philippians, that is wrong. If, you're perf- if, you, if you are saved, you are called to model your life as a servant until the day you die in this world. But, this is, but we're really bad at being servants, though, aren't we? When someone asks us to do something, what is the first thing to come into our mind? We, we do the cost-benefit analysis. If someone asks ask us to do something, if Pastor J asks you to do something, then again, Pastor J really never asks you to do something. But if Pastor a, J asks you to do something, the first thing that comes into your mind is my schedule, which is fine. You need to schedule it. But at the end, we always talk about how much will this inconvenient me? How much will this inconvenient me? How much will I, st- will I spend my time doing this? Do I even want to do this? Right? That's the first thing I think of when someone asks me to do something. That is the opposite of being a servant, you see. Look, the greatest problem in Christianity right now, in my opinion, are entitled Christians. Christians who think they're entitled and not servants. They think God and church or whatever owes them something. But they're not really thinking about their identity as a servant. I was talking to 
a, a pastor from a really large church whose name will remain silent. And this pastor is saying the attendance of that church since COVID has dropped off 50%. But what I know about this church is this. They were able to grow very fast in a short period of time because other Christians from other churches left their church to go to that church. These people who left their home churches go to this church because this church had a better offer. Came there. And when COVID hit, they thought, I no longer have, you know, it's, COVID gave you, gave you an excuse of no longer having to commit to that church. My hypothesis is this. They came to that church in the first place because they feel entitled. They look at a church as a place of, 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 of a product, of giving them what they need in life, but not a place to serve. Churches, of course, have to offer you the clear word of God and offer you service and worship, and that's very true. But if all the church is to you, not to you, but you as in Christians in general, because you guys are here for crying out loud, right? But if all the church is to a person, it's something to be consumed. And if they're not happy with it, they're going to move on to a better option. How is that being a servant? How is that, how is that being Christ-like? How is that worshiping Jesus Christ as God? How is that modeling your life as a human being, as a, in the form of a perfect human being? We see this in marriages. I'm going to be faithful in my marriage so long as my partner is interesting or so long as my partner does things that I think they ought to do for me. If not, I will leave. Another important point. You serve not only people that you get along with, but to be like Christ means serving people that may not benefit you. This is what Tim Keller says, so don't blame me, don't hate me. I'm quoting Keller. He says, yeah, he says, many Christians think serving is a good idea, but once they start serving, people start disappointing these, people start disappointing them. And once people start disappointing them, they don't want to serve anymore once they get hurt. But Keller is saying, these people, even though they think they're serving, they're, really, they're not really serving the other person, they're really serving themselves. Because if you're serving people that benefits you, that you have something in common with, who doesn't hurt you, how are you really serving that person? Aren't you really serving yourself? That's what Keller says. And I said, Keller, you're being really harsh. But that's what Tim Keller says. Don't blame me, blame Keller. 
But I think that's true. There's nothing more Jesus Christ-like than serving your enemies. Serving those people who do not love you back. Who you think they're taking advantage of you. I'm not saying, let, like, you know, be a doorman and let people take advantage of you. But there's no more Christ-like than people, the serving people that you have no immediate benefit from. There's nothing more Christ-like than staying with people who hurt you and who disappoint you. Christ emptied himself to save the people who destroyed his creation. Look, I knew a kid who bullied Caleb when Caleb was in the fifth in middle school. Even now, when I think of that little kid, he's in college now, oh, I don't have the most loveliest feeling about that lad. But that's what happens when you hurt some hurt your creation, right? Jesus Christ emptied himself for people who made a mess out of his creation. And he serves them. There's nothing more Christ-like than living like that. How long do you have to serve? How long do you have to serve until you die, until the Lord takes you home? Because what, did Jesus, what happened to Jesus Christ? Because he served and obeyed God, Paul says God raised him up and gave Jesus Christ honor above every other name. When Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God and served his will, he received more honor than he received prior to the incarnation. The life that God values more than anything else is this life of service and obedience. Let's be clear here. That's how you see God in your life. There is no such thing as knowing God by simply going to him and praying, praying God to help me and he miraculously help you. He may do that, but that kind of faith will not last long. It's the type of life that gets your heart broken over and over and over again. And you go with Christ in those heartbreaking moments. It is in those moments that Christ reveals himself to you. That's the life that you're called to live, Christian. How do you do with your own power? You can't with your own power. Remember, God is a God who constantly extends his love to his people. God will extend his love to you as you go with him to these difficult places. He will give you the, through his spirit, he will give you the love and the wisdom and the patience that is needed to do this. When you do it, you will start to see amazing fruits in your life.
look. Last point. Friday, I, I had a good intent of going to Alexandria Small Group. Right? Let's drive to Alexandria. Let's go. And then, ding! Hyoen Daniel said, oh, the small group is canceled. I go, oh. I was disappointed. But my, I said, oh, I get to sleep. But my wife said, do you have small group tonight? And I go, I cannot tell a lie. No. Can we go shopping on a Friday night? I want a red coat. She wants a red coat. And I go, okay. So we went and go red coat shopping. Evidently, red coat is not popular at Tyson's. You go through all these malls. As I was walking in the mall with my wife and my daughter, I was walking, and my wife came to my arm, and she held my arm like Korean women do. And my daughter came to my left arm and held my arm. I was like one of those rap guys, right, in Vegas, right? And it hit me. I'm, my daughter and my wife has this affection for me. Because by his grace, I'm serving them. It is because God gave me the spirit and the ability and the patience to serve them. I'm reaping the fruit of love in my life. That's how you experience the fruit of God in your life. If you serve and obey him, you will experience these unimaginable fruits. I hope that you live a life of a servant. Your attitude always has to be that of a servant. I pray that will be your attitude. Let's pray.